HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. Hello, this is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Join us over the next several weeks as we talk with authors from our winter and spring issues, now available online. Our winter issue, 21.4, from which this episode is drawn, features articles on mobility and immobility, food activism, and culinary transitions. I'm your host for today, Amy Trubeck, and I'm a member of Gastronomica's Editorial Collective. I'm a professor at the University of Vermont. I'm very involved in food systems work there. And I'm also author of Why I Am Mad About the Ducks, which is published in Gastronomica 21.4. So it's out and available. So we're joined this week by my partner, Brad, who runs an apple orchard, has a farm stand, and is a trained chef. He is a major character in my essay, so who better to help us understand um, why the ducks unexpectedly found their way to our home kitchen. Uh, So um, we're going to have an interview, and thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. So to begin, I'm going to provide some background as to how these ducks ended up at our house. After that, Brad will share his stories before we move on to talking about the various uh, types of duck Uh, products that uh, Brad ended up making. So um, the time period that inspired this essay was over the course of the winter of 2021, so a year ago. This was before the COVID vaccines were generally available um, and then leading through into the early days of vaccination. So really late December into April. The vaccine, the place that this all took place is central Vermont. So in a region of one of the states of the United States that at the time had very strict rules about social gathering. And Vermont uh, citizens were very compliant with those rules. So the period that we're talking about, we were pretty locked down and making and sharing food for anyone was almost exclusively pick up and take out. So 
Um, and then the place that we're talking about specifically in central Vermont was a, um, a food pantry community meal center where Brad was volunteering last winter. Um, so can you share with uh, people who are listening to this podcast uh, why what you were doing at the Food Pantry Community Meal Center and why you were doing it? Sure. So uh, last winter I had begun volunteering at um, a, a shelter for the unhomed and the folks there were also uh, charged with making about 120 meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for folks that the state, unhomed folks that the state had uh, put up at local hotels during um, the pandemic. And so uh, the shelter was responsible for producing these meals on a daily basis. And, you know, they had some budget money to buy the food, but a lot of the food uh, that came to us uh, came from the local grocery stores, food that was still fine, but may have um, uh, gone past the the sell-by date they chose to put on the food. So the food was fine, but it was just dated from what they were trying to sell. And so that uh, the food that we received from these stores ran the range from a lot of bread and pastry and baked goods to to some meat as well. So uh, one day a week I was going and helping put together those meals and organizing uh, one one of the big dinners uh, for the week uh, using the food that we received from the from the grocery stores. And just to expand a little bit, you there the whole center is primarily staffed by volunteers. Um, but you were a, a little bit of unusual in that you were a volunteer that was, had trained culinary and food management training, correct? That's that's correct, yep. Uh, a lot of the folks who volunteer uh, didn't necessarily have the specific skills to do the cooking for that number of people. And when I first started volunteering the first day, uh, my job was to put cereal in little bags for the folks and put breakfast bags together. Uh, and uh, it didn't take long at all uh, for the folks there to realize that I had skills that would uh, could be utilized in the kitchen. So after the first day, I was pretty much in the kitchen the whole time cooking. Okay, great. And also at the time the there were f- pandemic related funds that were helping support the unhomed people to live in these hotels and also get three meals a di- day delivered to them correct Is that right? that's correct yep and and that was phased out i think the state ended the support of that this past summer so it was about a year that they were supporting uh keeping uh you know, probably two, 3,000 people across the state uh, in, in homes, in hotels. Yeah. And at the time, the, it was also helpful and useful for the grocery stores because purchasing patterns were so unclear and all over the place because people's behavior was changing a lot because of the sort of opening up and locking down um, of like public institutions that might be 
providing food um, for others. And so, so that in some ways it was using the old model, the traditional model of charity meals, but it was also getting sort of ramped up in a number of different ways because there was different types of food being um, donated. The meals were being created in a different way. They had to be made for takeout. And also the numbers of people getting the food was higher than it had been in the past overall. Yes. And so, you know, certainly during the pandemic, uh, there was, you know, not just with the unhomed, but those in low income situations were really uh, in a tough situation. Uh, perhaps they couldn't work because of the pandemic. Um, the need for community meals had really soared during that period. Yeah. So you were, so you were there and you're kind of in the crosshairs of this really intense and unique moment where there were a lot of different types of demands on these volunteers and you came in and you were, you came in with a skill set that the people who were vol- the volunteer sort of coordinator and the, the person who was running the shelter in general were saying, wow, Brad, there's a lot you can do for us. Uh, thank you for coming. So can you describe some, um, we'll get to the specifics of the ducks in a minute, but can you, describes some of the work once they figured out that you didn't just need to be bagging cereal, what types of things did they ask you to do? Right. So, yeah. So that first day uh, you mentioned Judy in your article and and we know Judy and uh, I'm bagging cereal and Judy says, what the hell are you doing in there? (laughs) Get your behind (laughs) in the kitchen. I've got work for you to do. And I'm pretty sure that first week, she's like, do something with all this hamburger. And so I think we made meatloaf or something along those lines for 120 people. Uh, And then each given week that I would return, she would have food that she received from the grocery store for me to use uh, and relying on my expertise as a chef to be able to use uh, cuts of meat uh, that or fish that uh, they were not themselves um, trained or qualified to cook in a sense. They, they weren't familiar with it. And certainly duck was one of them. But oftentimes it was ground beef or chicken, um, salmon, uh, other fish that may have come. And so I would take, you know, oh, we have 100 pounds of pork shoulder. And we would I would take that and turn that into a stew or turn that into pulled pork or make something with uh, those cuts of meat uh, for the folks. So my primary job was to, uh, to, to make dinner for, for using the food that they had while I was there. And it, and it had to be produced in such a way that it could be put into clamshell containers and shipped to the hotels and then reheated in most likely a microwave. Yeah, yeah. So there was a there were a lot of constraints, and also there was there were a lot of donations that right were were flummoxing the other people who were working uh, to try to make the meals, and so you were able to to help with that. So tell us about what happened what happened with the ducks. So I think because there's a couple phases to the story. So one one week you come in there on a on the day that you're volunteering. And Judy says to you, well, we've got a lot of ducks. That's right. So they, she had pulled 
oh gosh, probably 10 or 12 whole ducks from the freezer that she had gotten from the one of the stores in town. And of course, they didn't even know where to begin to how to cook those ducks. And so, so that particular meal, I had kept it, I'm like, well, we'll keep it pretty simple. And we had, I cut them up in such a way that we, in a sense, I made something similar to a duck a l'orange, you know, a roasted duck with a kind of a sweet glaze on it, uh, figuring that that would, you know, appeal to the, to the broadest audience. Um, and so that was the first foray, foray into the ducks was uh, sending out uh, something akin to duck a l'orange uh, to the folks. Um, it was the following week that I came back and Judy had said, you know, they hated the duck. Nobody ate the duck. Uh, nobody, nobody likes duck. So, so that's the, that's the story of the first duck meal. So when you broke down those 10 duck, 12 ducks, you, you, you only used the breast and then you refroze or kept. No, we, I roasted all of it. Okay. So then the next week you get the feedback that the duck was not a success because people weren't used to it and that, but there were still more ducks. Well, the, the, they weren't more ducks, but then they stepped, then they kept coming in because what had happened was they had, this was right around Valentine's day. And so the store had brought in a bunch of ducks to break down, to sell uh, for Valentine's day. Uh, and again, this was sort of an anticipation by the store, knowing that all the restaurants were closed and that people would be wanting to cook a nice meal at home. So, so this was so they brought the duck into the store, which is a product they normally would not have had on the shelf. Uh, and then uh, it proved that people weren't interested in the duck, uh, and so they had the duck left over, uh, and then those duck went to uh to the shelter uh and this went on for about a month every week more duck parts would keep showing up uh and it was about a month or so before the store had decided you know we're we we we've got to stop with the duck because uh we're not selling any we're just giving it all away and so the period of time we're talking about the ducks coming into the shelter is about four or five weeks and they would come every week yeah, so we're starting to uh, get to these places where I get a little mad about the ducks because I'm like, this is one of these great inefficiencies of how we organize the relationship between food production and food consumption in the United States. Uh, there are people that are raising these ducks and then harvesting them and slaughtering them, and there are ducks are increasingly not part of the everyday American diet. They never really were, for, except for certain regions, but they do have this connection with certain holidays. But that uh, things like having duck for Valentine's Day is really restaurant fare, not home cooking fare. So you start to see some of the ways in which our food system the fissures in our food system really were opening up with the COVID and all of the ways in which we weren't able to source either raw ingredients, but really mostly food that was already prepared for us by others. So, so there you were just with this onslaught, this cascading amount of duck parts that the center didn't really know what to do with, but they knew you 
knew what to do with those duck parts. And so then you become like this very central character in solving the duck problem, not just for the center, but also for the grocery store that is donating them because the grocery store doesn't also know what to do with all these duck parts. They just have these orders that they placed. So um, given all that, why do you, why did Judy end up saying to you, the volunteer, <laughs> Brad, take the ducks? Well, the, the duck parts uh, were starting to pile up in the freezer and um uh, as is the case with uh, any facility, you always wish you had more freezer or refrigerator capacity than you do. And so it became a point where we were running out of room in the freezer for other food donations that were coming in. And because we had tried serving duck to the group before without much success, uh, Judy sort of threw her hands up in exasperation and she said, Brad, take the ducks get them out of here. I don't have room for them. And so I'm like, uh, I don't feel really comfortable taking the ducks. But anyways, the long and the short of it is I got the ducks. Okay. That's great. All right. So we're at, at this dramatic moment, we're going to take a, a quick break and then we'll be back to finish telling you the story about what Brad did with the ducks. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. Okay, so we're now going to return from the break and continue our interview um, with Brad. And I'm Amy Trubeck, and this is a Gastronomica podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. And we're talking about the inspiration for my new Food Phenomena article, Why I'm Mad About the Ducks, which is available in issue 21.4 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. And it's now online. Okay, so we've gotten to the point in this story where Judy has given you many, many, many duck parts, um, and you are basically taking them home. So in order to better explain what happened, can you tell us a little bit about the business that you have and how these ducks were never really just going to be for you and I for Valentine's dinner or any other dinner, but you had 
a bigger plan for the ducks. Yes. So uh, in addition to the orchard that I run, uh, we also, uh, relying on my sort of chef abilities, uh, have a um, line of prepared foods that we started uh, during the pandemic. Um, and so we uh, make and package uh, soups and stews. And we also make uh, par-baked wood-fired pizzas people can take home. Uh, and we make those in our wood-fired oven. And so uh, the soups and the pizzas have become a cornerstone of our business during the pandemic. And, uh, and so that provided me a, an avenue or outlet to be able to utilize said ducks. Okay, um, that's great. And I think what I want to do for the rest of the interview is I could kind of go off and do my food systems critique of um, how we have this, what I would say is like this, so many problems of connection and disconnection between aspects or components of our system. But I thought, why not take the interview in a different direction and not just focus on a deficit model of our food system? I wanted to sort of find out from you how the ducks allowed you to express your culinary creativity and your entrepreneurial um, energy. So what did you decide to do with all these ducks, given that you did have this um, business where you were making prepared foods and all of a sudden you had a lot of ducks? So what did you do with all that duck? Both how did you transform it from the raw duck <laughs> to the finished duck? And then what happened after that? Right. So the first thing was to appease my own mind, figure out a way to launder the ducks, as it were. Um you know, I was I was given the ducks, uh, and I could utilize those ducks, and the utilization of those ducks would have led to a profit, but that just didn't feel right to me. And so I had made a deal. The first part of this is I had made a deal with Judy that I would reimburse the value of the duck that I was receiving with fruits and vegetables I could purchase from my purveyor. Uh, and the fruits and vegetables were uh, something that wasn't being donated uh, in enough quantity to to feed the folks. So basically, I laundered the duck by replacing it with cases of bananas and cases of oranges and vegetables uh, that could be utilized to produce nutritious meals uh, for the folks. As to the ducks themselves, once laundered, uh, the duck legs got used. Uh, much, much of it went to making duck confit, which became a, a popular pizza topping. Uh, and the other thing that we did with the um, uh, legs is I made a, a Vietnamese, a traditional Vietnamese soup with the roasted duck legs uh, with noodles, which was also very popular. Uh, the duck breasts, I mostly brined and smoked those, and we used the brine smoked breast as a pizza topping. Uh, all of the bones got made into stock, uh, and so all of the parts got used uh, uh, from the duck. So as they say in the restaurant world, you utilized all the product. We, we used everything but the quack. Yeah, everything but the quack. That's great. So just um, in case people don't fully understand, can you explain to um, everyone exactly how you make duck confit and then what you do with duck confit once you've made it? 
Sure. So duck confit, it's a cured duck, uh, usually using the, the leg thigh. And they are cured using a salt and sugar cure for uh, 8 to 24 hours. Uh, and then uh, that uh, cure is rinsed away. And those duck legs are then simmered very slowly in their own rendered duck fat. So they're completely submerged in duck fat uh, in a pot, cooking at about uh, 180 to 200 degrees, 220 below a boil, and they cook for about three hours, and the result is just this beautiful, lovely, slightly salty duck. Um, and then uh, once those are done, we typically would shred the meat from from the legs and use that primarily as a pizza topping. So that's duck confit, which is maybe one of my favorite duck recipes. So where did you learn how to make duck confit? Uh, uh, in culinary school, and um, and then early in my career, I worked for uh, French restaurants, and so th- the duck uh, confit is a staple on the on the uh, French menu, in part because the duck breast is a staple on the menu. So once you take off the breast and use them, you have all the legs left over. You have to figure out what to do with those, and so duck confit is a really popular way to utilize and sell uh, the duck legs in the restaurant world. So I think that brings up another question for me, which is sort of get, goes back to this que- the sort of paradoxes of this story about the duck, which is how many home cooks know how to make any of those duck recipes that you told us about? So you had the duck confit, you had the duck ham, and then you had the shredded duck. Like, is that knowledge something that you have from your professional training? And is it would it even be possible for somebody going to the grocery store to be able to access or know how to handle those duck parts? My knowledge of this is exclusively from culinary school and working in restaurants. And my guess is that the majority of home cooks wouldn't know where to begin uh, how to cook with duck or use duck because it's just not a product that we eat and consume a lot of in this country. So most home cooks have never worked with it before. And so you may have adventurous cooks who may work through a recipe to do something like duck confit, but it's, it's probably pretty rare that these types of recipes that you're talking about seem to exist mostly within the purview of restaurants. Yeah. And I think, you know, and that sort of then brings me to this other question, which is who was raising these ducks and, you know, what makes, uh, they were primarily, we, we got, we did get some information and they were from some small farms in the region. And we are very close to Quebec where there is a, the, the French culinary system is pretty powerful in terms of the way people eat. And so there might be some more, uh, everyday home practices of making duck in some way, shape, or form. But in general, you know, it's also an interesting question about are we raising or producing the food that is actually what most Americans either know how to make or want to eat, which, you know, you brought up the point that you ended up actually purchasing fruits and vegetables, which the community center uh, and shelter was, they weren't getting enough of those, even though that's what they wanted to provide. And that's what, let's say the federal government and the nutrition 
the people who are interested in overall human nutrition want more fruits and vegetables in the diets of all Americans, but certainly those of lower income. And yet what they're getting are a lot of duck parts. I think beyond, say, the holiday and, and uh, the COVID, you may have seen more things like duck show up at the grocery store is because the duck people's supply chain was disrupted. The, most, the majority of the duck that was being produced in this country was be was being produced for restaurants. And then when the pandemic came along and all the restaurants shut down, you still had all the ducks in the pipeline, as it were. Uh, and all of the places that those ducks would usually go to were closed. And so the duck people were scrambling to figure out a way how to market and sell their duck to an audience that typically wasn't their consumer, that is the home cook. And so I think that that, you know, led to, you know, seeing a product like duck, you know, show up in the first place. Yeah, that is such a good point. And I think that, um, as I said earlier in the, in our interview, you know, a lot of what the pandemic did has done is open up and reveal some of the fissures and the sort of inefficiencies and complexities of supply and demand in our food system and how, if you have one thing change in terms of, let's say, where the supply chain is going, you can have a huge, there could be a huge number of knock-on consequences. And including in that is the potential for a lot of waste of food, which is which is really a tragedy when we have increasing rates of food insecurity at the same time during the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's just so much to think about. I think just you know, as I was eating the pizza with the duck ham on it last summer, I certainly got very inspired by all of the complexities of this story and how it just shows us how much we still have to figure out and the ways in which we have to anticipate or think through consequences of actions in the production side of the way we organize our food system and all the way through to consumption and then back. Um, so, and, you know, you and I both love uh, duck and we love duck confit and we love, um, we love the, the Vietnamese duck soup. It was all delicious. Um, and lots of people got to share in that deliciousness, but it still makes me sad that the people who were initially supposed to be in a sense, nourished and fed by the community center that they sort of were let down in a number of different ways by the way our food system was working at that time. Uh, so I'm not, maybe I'm less mad about the ducks as the months go by. Um, and thank you so much for letting me <laughs> appreciate what's great about those ducks. So do you have any final comments about your experience with the ducks last year? Uh, I would just eat more duck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just for purposes of the podcast, we're also, and one of the reasons why there are a fair amount of ducks out there is because there's a greater interest now in duck eggs and duck eggs are bigger and they have, um, they have a little more fat in them. And we really love using duck eggs for making homemade pasta. So there is, there is some really virtual cycle work that you can do in uh, having ducks or interacting with all aspects of the duck. Um, uh, as you uh, prepare your meals at home in the future. 
So um, that's it for us. Uh, thank you, Brad, for joining today. And uh, listeners can read Why I'm Mad About the Ducks and Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.4. For more details, you can visit gastronomica.org. And join Gastronomica next week as we talk to Carol Cunahan about food activism and the language of menus in Italy's slow food movement. Thank you very much.